1: Today's show is sponsored by Audible, the home of over 150,000 audiobooks. To get a free, yes, free audiobook, go to audibletrial.com forward slash queens and go find yourself something awesome to listen to today. Sign up for a free trial membership at audibletrial.com forward slash queens. And better yet, by doing so, you'll be showing your support for the Queens of England podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Queens of England podcast. Episode 14... Eleanor of Castile, the last of the crusading queens. So here we are again with another Eleanor. Like I have said throughout this show, imaginative naming was not the strong suit of noble and royal parents in the Middle Ages. Like with the Matildas, I need to start this by setting out my naming choices, which hopefully should minimise confusion. Wherever possible, when I refer to Eleanor of Provence, it will be using either that full title or The Queen while she reigns as Queen Consort. For Eleanor of Castile, I will either use her full title or just Eleanor. I will be tackling Eleanor of Castile in two parts. This episode will deal with her life up until her coronation as Queen, and the next one will deal with her time on the throne, but don't think you're getting shortchanged this week. We have a civil war, crusading, and even some Godfather-type vengeance, so I'm hoping you won't feel shortchanged. To begin this story, though, we need to go back pretty much to the start of the show. If you recall, before marrying Eleanor of Provence, Henry III had been betrothed and was close to marrying the heiress of the county of Poitou, called Joan, but it was called off because it was not really a deal wanted by Henry, Joan, or, most importantly, the King of France. Joan, though, was too well-born and her territory too strategically useful for her to stay on the market for too long, and soon enough she was married to King Ferdinand III of Castile. Castile was the greatest of the Christian Spanish kingdoms, and under Ferdinand it had come to conquer or unify almost all of what we now think of as Spain. If you are at all interested in the Reconquista, then you will be very familiar with Ferdinand, as it was he that brought about the permanent union between Castile and León, with the Muslim presence in Spain and his reign confined to a narrow corridor in the far south of the peninsula, known as the Emirate of Granada. Now, both Ferdinand and Joan had links to the English and French crowns. I didn't go into too much detail into Joan's family history last time, as there was a lot to get through, but interestingly enough, she can trace her links back to she can trace her links to the crown through Alice of France, the long-time betrothed fiancée of Richard the Lionheart, sister to King Philip Augustus of France, and mistress of Henry II. After being disgraced by the Angevins, Alice married the Count of Ponthieu, meaning that she was Joan's grandmother. Ferdinand, though, had bona fide blood links to the English royal house, because his great-grandparents on his mother's side were none other than Henry II and Eleanor of Aquitaine through their daughter Eleanor. He had been married once before to a German princess who had died in 1235 and had had ten children already, seven of whom survived to adulthood, all of them sons. But a political marriage to a prominent French noblewoman who would bring with her territory was too good an opportunity to pass up on. Ferdinand and Joan had five children, four of them sons, and then the daughter was Eleanor. Her upbringing must have been quite the sausage fest with eleven brothers. She was born in 1241, and as usual, very little is known about her upbringing. Tragedy struck in 1252 when her father Ferdinand died, with her half-brother, the warlike Alfonso X, succeeding him. And a key foreign policy goal of Alfonso was Gascony. Castile had been keen on Gascony ever since the marriage of Alfonso VIII to Eleanor of Aquitaine's daughter, and was prepared to fight to get it. Henry III, though, did not want to fight yet another war as he had had quite enough on his plate without some Spanish king getting involved too. You may remember that it was around this time that Simon de Montfort was making an almighty mess of being governor of Gascony, and so it was certainly in Henry's interest not to start a war. So they came to a deal that Henry would marry his eldest son Edward, the future Edward I, to Alfonso's half-sister Eleanor. It was a decent deal all round, although particularly for the English, and negotiations took forever. Alfonso wanted English help in securing full hegemony in Spain, and Henry wanted peace on the frontier as well as an advantageous marriage for his son and heir. Eleanor was the daughter of a powerful Christian crusader king and the sister of the current king of the most powerful kingdom on the Gascon border, and even though she came without dowry, Henry must be commended for doing pretty well after being dealt some pretty crappy cards. He even managed to recover some lands for Gascony and achieved that peace that he so craved. In 1254, Edward set out with his mother, the Archbishop of Canterbury, and a large company of notable nobles and ladies from London. When they hit the coast, they met a fleet of 300 ships drawn from across Sussex and the Isle of Wight, with the two regions competing for who would have the honour of the best ship. When the men of Sussex found out that the men from the Isle of Wight had a much better ship than theirs, then they reacted... poorly. They attacked it, killed a bunch of its sailors, cut off the mainmast, and attached it to their own flagship. What poor losers. When all that brouhaha was sorted out, the fleet set sail for Bordeaux. Once there, Edward spent a few months getting acquainted with his new territory, as he would become the Duke of Gascony thanks to this marriage. They then met the Spanish party in Burgos, the Castilian capital, where Edward impressed everyone in a great tournament put on to welcome the English. He may have been only 15, but Edward was already quite an impressive specimen, well over six feet tall with great long arms, which is where his nickname Longshanks comes from. After the tournament, he was knighted by Alfonso and was married to Eleanor on the 1st of November at the Great Abbey of Las Huelgas, making Eleanor the third successive 12-year-old bride to marry an English king. The two did not waste any time before consummating the match and getting on with the vital business of making babies. Yet again, an English king managed to find himself a very productive mother for a wife, And I do wonder whether the spectre of the Anarchy, a hugely destructive civil war caused by the death of a sonless king, was still hanging over England at this point, as barring Berengaria of Navarre, all the queens of England since the end of that war produced a lot of children. Eleanor of Castile was right up there, giving birth to at least 16 children, though it was far from plain sailing. Their first child was a stillborn daughter in 1255, and the trauma of this event meant that they waited five years before having another child, but then she died at the age of three. Indeed, it was not until their sixth child that one of their kids made it out of early childhood, a daughter called, you've guessed it, Eleanor. In all, of their children that we know about, only seven made it into double figures, and only three of those would outlive their parents. Of these seven, two of them were sons. The eldest son was Alfonso, born in 1273, and who had become the Earl of Chester, and their final child, a son called Edward, would go on to become Edward II. Many historians have cast Eleanor of Castile as being a rather disinterested mother, one who paid little attention to her children while they were growing up. An off cited example is her and Edward's treatment of their young son Henry. While the six-year-old princeling lay dying in Guildford, neither parent went to visit him, even though they were only a few miles away in London. Now it seems to me, doing a little psychoanalysis from three quarters of a millennium later, that this perhaps was a defence mechanism employed by a mother and father far too accustomed to their children dying. If you don't get too attached, then the pain of their death would not be so great. The Middle Ages were a period of high infant mortality, and so infant mortality was a factor of life, but Eleanor suffered far greater from it than most, and this must have had a profound effect on her. Eleanor travelled to England for the first time in late 1255. Being the good host that he was, Henry III made every preparation to make her transition to the English court life more comfortable. This included many of the most obvious problems. England is a lot colder than Spain, and so he made sure that the windows in her apartments were glazed, that her rooms had raised halves and thick carpets, and that she was provided with lots of expensive warm clothes. Apparently, he made these choices after deep consultation with her family, a sign that Henry III was a terribly sweet guy most of the time. Now, of course, this led to the same accusations of extravagance that had dogged Eleanor of Provence all through her reign, but Eleanor of Castile took great care not to repeat the mistakes committed by the Queen. Firstly, she had not come accompanied with quite so many members of her own family, and she made sure to accept English attendants as well as Spanish ones. This was not the only way in which Eleanor differed from the reigning Queen. She was not a great beauty and had fairly simple tastes in fashion and clothes, very different from the extravagant and beautiful Eleanor of Provence. She was far more bookish and favoured the outside, which perhaps explains why she was so willing to accompany her husband on his various foreign adventures. The two Eleanors were also not at all close. The Queen was extremely protective of her son, but it appears that she lost him to Eleanor very early on. Indeed, as we will see, Eleanor and Edward were perhaps the most traditional royal couple of the Middle Ages, as there is little evidence that he ever took mistresses, staying faithful to his wife throughout her life. Eleanor's married life before coming queen was dominated by two events, the Second Barons' War and the Ninth Crusade. In 1258, at the start of the crisis that led to the Second Barons' War, Eleanor was only 16 and had been in England for just over two years. In the last show, we mainly described the conflict from the perspective of Eleanor of Provence, but forgive me if this goes over similar ground, as this baptism of fire for Eleanor of Castile is vital to understanding her time as queen. Initially, Edward lent his support to the reformers against his father, with Eleanor being one of his closest advisors counselling him to do so. However, he was forced to change his position or risk being considered in active rebellion against his father. In 1261, Edward and Eleanor went to Gascony, where they gained valuable experience in governing and running a court, as well as engaging in the activity that both of them most loved. Tournaments. It is very possible that Eleanor was the one that really got Edward into participating in tournaments, as it was something that really ran in her family, and it is clear that she was an enthusiastic attender and supporter of such events throughout her life. Such fun and games, though, were brought to a screeching halt, first by a rebellion in Wales, and then the full outbreak of open warfare between Henry and his barons in 1263. Eleanor was Edward's constant companion through all the tumult of the conflict performing the dual role of wife and advisor. While the Queen and most of the ladies of court evacuated to France during this phase of the conflict, Eleanor stayed in Windsor so that she could be close to her husband. Indeed, Edward was known to make time to go visit his wife from time to time, just to be with her. This would not be considered unusual now, but it was positively unheard of at the time. They really did love and rely on each other. When the King and Edward went off with their army to fight the Battle of Lewis, Eleanor was left in Windsor in charge of the castle's garrison and some hostages of the barons fighting against the royalists. Of course, that battle was a decisive baronial victory, with both Henry and Edward being taken prisoner and forced to capitulate to the forces of Simon de Montfort. This was a desperate time for Eleanor. Edward was in very real danger while in captivity, and Eleanor herself was pregnant with her third daughter. Moreover, she was practically penniless, as the lands granted to her by Edward was seized by the new de Montfortian regime. However, she did not let fear paralyze her, and quickly realised that it was imperative that she hold on to Windsor for as long as possible. De Montfort already held all the bargaining chips, and it was important that she did not become yet another one of them. Under her command, the castle held out for just over a year, but eventually it was forced to surrender in June 1264. She did, however, secure safe passage from the besiegers, and she travelled to the king's side. It was there that her recently born daughter died.
0: One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm Sandra
1: Died after only six months of life. Eleanor placed the blame for her death squarely on de Montfort, whose forces had put her under such stress and kept her from the best medical care. She and Edward were finally reunited in March 1265, but it would not be until May that Edward would effect his escape. Now, I glossed over this last time, but I have to tell you about it now in more detail because it's a great story. Edward, while in captivity, was permitted a small number of visitors to the castle. And one time, a group of his friends brought around several horses, which they proceeded to race in a field just outside the walls. This got the guards used to the prince mounting a horse and riding at a full gallop. However, cunningly, they kept one horse completely fresh. So, when the guards weren't paying too much attention, he took the animal and rode with all haste to freedom. His escape led to his victory at the climactic Battle of Evesham, where de Montfort's army was totally vanquished and the man himself was killed. No quarter was given, and the death of his daughter must have been foremost in Edward's mind when he sent his nemesis' mutilated head to be mounted on a spike. After all that warring, you would have thought that Edward would have wanted to lay down his sword and take a bit of a break, but no. Edward loved a good war, and his next step was to take on the ultimate challenge that any man in the period could take. Crusade. Now, when we last left the Crusaders in the late 12th century with the exploits of Richard the Lionheart in the Third Crusade, well, things have not gone well since then. Again, this is not a podcast about the Crusade, so I won't go into too much detail, but from the Fourth Crusade onwards, the focus of the Christian armies invading the Near East was to first take Egypt and then swing up to the ailing Crusader states from there. This was one of those plans that was great in theory, but in practice led to disaster every time. To quote historian Bernard Hamilton, It was axiomatic that crusades were pleasing to God, yet it was self evident that most of them failed. What we're about to talk about is sometimes called part of the Eighth Crusade, but others consider it to be its own thing and called it the Ninth. Now, in the Eighth Crusade, Louis IX of France attacked the city of Tunis in modern day Tunisia. This was actually his second attempt at crusading, his first one, twenty years earlier, having ended in complete disaster and this was no different. Their attempts to lay siege to Tunis led to the entire army being racked with dysentery, because that's what happens when you go to war in the Middle Ages, and the most prominent victim of this outbreak was Louis himself. His heir, Philip III, took over with the aid of his uncle Charles of Sicily, but his instinct was to deal and get back to France, and it is into this mess that Edward arrived. Edward had taken the cross in 1268, in a fancy ceremony that had involved many of his adversaries in the barons' wars, and with him went his wife. There was a little bit of pushback against this, but Eleanor insisted, saying it was her Christian duty to do so, becoming the third and final English queen to have gone on crusade, though of course Berengaria had been the only sitting English queen to have gone. This was not a decision that she would have taken lightly, Crusading was a very dangerous business, and certainly no place for young children, meaning that she would have to be separated from her kids for several years. Discovering the embarrassing failure of the Eighth Crusade already, Edward made plans to lead his army, and whoever wants to join him, on a proper crusade. None of this namby-pamby, wishy-washy messing about in North Africa, Edward was headed for the Holy Land. Accompanying a French force led by Charles of Anjou, Edward landed at Acre, which is now in northern Israel, and was at that point part of the Kingdom of Jerusalem. Now, this was not a large army. Estimates vary, but we're talking about the low thousands here, in an area with huge Muslim armies. They therefore mostly focused on raiding, though when eventually they were reinforced, they did take some settlements such as Nazareth from the Mamluks, the ruling dynasty of Egypt, led by the Sultan Barbarus, famously the first commander to defeat the Mongols in open battle who at that time were invading his lands from Persia. Edward, far from aiding in the fight against the Mongols, actually attempted to ally with them against Barbaris, and they did engage in some limited joint operations, but eventually they were pushed back. The most significant victory of the crusade was the destruction of the Mamluk navy off the coast of Cyprus. Okay, so what was Eleanor doing while all this was happening? Well, being Eleanor, she gave birth to two children while over there, one of whom died almost immediately, but the second survived and was known as Joan of Acre in recognition of the auspicious place of her birth. The fact of that second pregnancy tells us that Edward must have spent some time with Eleanor while in the Holy Land, that she was not isolated from all the action like Berengaria had been. After Nazareth had been retaken, she underwent a pilgrimage to some famous religious sites there, and also acted as a literary patron, commissioning a translation with full-colour illustrations of Vegetius's De Re Militari, or Concerning Military Matters, a treatise from the late 4th century Roman theorists on the practice and art of warfare that she gifted to her husband. That said, Eleanor did not play an especially vital role in the events of the Crusade, nothing like as vital as her mother-in-law's sister, Margaret of Provence, had done in the 7th Crusade, alongside her husband, Louis IX. The fact is that this final Crusade was something of an anticlimax, and Eleanor spent much of it pregnant and therefore not available to go marching about with her husband. The most famous story of Eleanor in the Holy Land concerns an assassination attempt on Edward by an intruder into his tent. Edward was stabbed twice before wrestling the would-be assassin to the ground and killing him, a reminder that Edward was a big, powerful guy. Chroniclers have painted a rather wonderful picture of what happened next. This is from William Camden. Quote, When her husband was treacherously wounded by a Moor with a poisoned sword, and rather grew worse than received any ease by what physicians applied, she found a remedy, as new and unheard of, as full of love and endearment. For by reason of the malignity of the poison, her husband's wounds could not possibly be closed, but she licked them daily with her own tongue and sucked out the venomous humour, to her a most delicious liquor. By the power whereof, or rather by the virtue of the tenderness of a wife, she so drew out the poison matter that he was completely cured of his wound, and she escaped without catching any harm. What then can be more rare than this lady's expressions of love, or what can be more admirable? The tongue of a wife, anointed, if I may so say, with duty and love to her husband, draws from her beloved those poisons could not be drawn out by the most approved physician, and what many and most exquisite medicines could not do, it affected purely by the love of a wife. Isn't that beautiful? Well, it's probably all rubbish, as usual. Sigh. But what this apocryphal story does, though, tell us, first of all, is that the royal couple were thought of as being very close. That a story of such tender affection and heroic wifing did not seem odd to contemporaries. You would not catch this story in a chronicle about John and Isabel, to be sure. It also demonstrates the good regard that she was held in by the sources. She is seen in a quasi-saintly manner, a miraculous healer of her noble and gallant husband. In 1272, the Crusaders, after signing a ten-year truce with the Mamelukes, guaranteeing at least for a decade the security of the Crusader states, though they would eventually fall for good, in 1291. This was despite the furious opposition of Edward, who wanted to carry on the fight. But he was overruled by others, and he did not have the troops to continue a unilateral war. On the 22nd of September, Edward, Eleanor, and the English army left Acre, arriving back in Sicily a month later, where they stayed for a little while, as Edward had still not completely recovered from the injuries sustained in thwarting the attempt on his life. In December of that year, though, came momentous news from England. Henry III was dead long live King Edward the First! The couple immediately made plans to return to England in order to be crowned and secure their position on the throne. Their journey home was a masterpiece of PR. Edward wanted to make maximum political hay out of his crusade. While it had not achieved the successes of the First or Third Crusade, he was the only current king in Western Christendom that had fought for Christ in the Holy Land, contrasting with the French king, who had secured a peace with the Muslims at Tunis almost immediately after getting the throne. On the way, Eleanor received a letter from the Pope asking her if she could arrange for Edward to make an audience with him. The fact that Eleanor was seen as this diplomatic first port of call is very interesting, as it is far from the normal case, once again showing the closeness of their relationship, as well as the trust that Edward held in his wife. Vengeance, though, was still on the menu for Eleanor. She had still not forgiven the de Montfort family for the trauma caused by their rebellion, and so she interceded with the Pope to get Guy de Montfort, the son of the late Simon de Montfort, put on papal trial for the murder of Henry of Almaine, one of Edward's cousins. Henry had taken the cross with Edward and had accompanied him to Sicily, but the prince had ordered him back to Gascony in order to keep an eye on the duchy while he was away. Henry travelled back with the French king, but was ambushed while praying in a church near Rome by Guy and his followers. When Guy refused to appear before the Pope, he was excommunicated and outlawed. This trashing of de Montfort's reputation can be put down to the successful lobbying of the Pope by Edward and Eleanor. The de Montforts were still a very powerful family, but the force of argument of the new king and queen of England won the day, and they did such a good job that Guy's name is immortalised in the most unexpected place. Writing, 40 years after these events, Dante, in his epic work The Divine Comedy, placed Guy in the seventh circle of hell in Inferno, where there was a river of boiling blood. Quote, we moved onwards with our trustworthy guide, along the margin of the crimson boiling, in which the boiled were shrieking loudly. I saw people immersed as far as the eyebrows, and the great centaur said, These are tyrants who indulged in blood and rapine, here they lament their offences, done without mercy. Here is Alexander and fierce Dionysus of Syracuse, who gave Sicily years of pain. That head of black hair is Azolino, and the other, which is blonde, is de d'Este, whose life was quenched in truth by his stepson up in the world. Then I turned to the poet, and he said, "'Let him guide you first now, and I second.' A little further on, Nessus paused, next to people who seemed to be sunk in boiling stream up to their throat. He showed us a shade apart from itself, saying, That one, Guy de Montfort, in God's church, pierced that heart that is still venerated by the Thames. The fact that the stain of Guy's actions carried through the decades after is a testament to the vehemence of Edward and Eleanor's hatred and the effectiveness of their campaign to destroy the de Montfort's name. Their vengeance was complete. After a stay in Gascony and a reunion with Eleanor's mother in Pontieu, Edward and Eleanor finally arrived at Dover in August 1274. The now Dowager Queen and the leading nobles put on a great big show, and Edward and Eleanor travelled in state first to Canterbury and then to Westminster Abbey, where they were crowned King and Queen of England in a magnificent ceremony, the first dual coronation for more than a century. Apologies if this sounds like a bit of a Hollywood ending, but it is here that we will leave the blushing couple for this episode. Next time, we will look at Eleanor's time as Queen, as she and Edward sought to consolidate their power base in England, and Eleanor discovered her other true great love, owning property.